So he, Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he looked at the paralytic, and he said, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God. I read that wrong. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given power, or such power, to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Father, Lord, we're so thankful for the revelation of Christ in the Gospels. There's yet to be revealed in the future, but what we have in his first coming is, is precious. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us the ability to, to understand, that you would humble our hearts so that we can know. And um, yeah, and Lord, that by your word, you would change us. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated if you would. Return to verse 1 and 2. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, if you remember where we were, I was going to say last week, where we were weeks ago, we were on the east side of the Galilee, and uh, it's there that Jesus had interacted with the demoniacs, and uh, in them was a legion of demons. Of course, Jesus cast them out and then into the pigs, and then there was this herd of swine that fled into the water and drowned, and then we had floating pigs all over. That's right. And so, because of both, uh, I would say, superstitious reasons and economical, uh, Jesus was basically asked to leave, so he was not welcome there any longer, so he returned to Capernaum, where his popularity was growing. And then during his stay there, a paralytic was brought to Jesus on a bed, a bed being probably a makeshift cot because he was paralyzed. Now, if you've been uh, reading the other Gospels, you realize that Mark and Luke report that Jesus was in a house, and that the house was so surrounded by people that those carrying the paralytic could not get close to him. And you probably remember the story. So what they did, uh, they went, they, they did something very conventional. They climbed the stairs to the roof of the house, which was flat, like all houses at that time, and they began to tear the roof apart. So they tore a hole in the roof large enough that they could then lower the paralytic down to where Jesus was teaching. So the question is, why didn't Matthew include this particular detail? I have no idea. Really, I don't. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I, I just don't know. If, if we had known the apostles, if we had known their personality, maybe we could uh, come to a better idea. Uh, I don't know. You know, 
as different personalities interact with different events, things are just, it's interesting to see people's perspective. But he may have just been offended by the violation of personal property. You know, Matthew being a numbers guy, he, when he saw that, maybe all he could think about was the cost of repairing it. And, uh, and maybe he didn't want to report it because it would just distract from the miracle itself, okay? I don't know, but you could imagine that as many scholars believe, Matthew wrote his gospel first. And then of course, as the other apostles were fact-checking it, they said, hey, why did you leave that out? That was so epic. But you have to understand that for some people, what is, what is epic and worthy of reporting is not epic and worthy of reporting to someone else. You get it? And so for whatever reason, you'll have to ask him when you see him why he didn't report that. Now, if you were to ask Matthew, hey, how did they get the paralytic to Jesus? He'd say, I'll tell you how they did it. It's unbelievable. You know, something like that. He would tell you how it happened, but he just didn't feel like it was worth reporting without inquiry. Now, what all of the synoptics do report is what Jesus observed in everyone that was involved. The text says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. Now, of course, that is a figure of speech. Jesus did not actually see faith as if faith was some kind of <clears throat> you know, visible entity. What he observed was their, their determination under the, the circumstances. What he witnessed was that they were, they were fully convinced that if they could get the paralytic to Jesus, what would he do? They need healing. They understood two things. Not only did Jesus have the ability to heal him, but Jesus would heal him. They just had to get him there. They had to get his attention. Okay? Now, it does seem, because of their urgency, this desperation, their willingness to destroy someone's house, their roof, that the man's paralysis was probably very recent. I, I think, it's, it's my opinion, by the way, I think it just happened. Okay? Otherwise, how would you explain the urgency? I mean, if, if he had been paralyzed for some time now, uh, why not wait until the crowd's dispersed? Why risk dropping him through the roof? You know, something has to account for their urgency. So I think that this, is, this has happened recently, okay? <clears throat> something had to justify breaking the law. <laughs> Be that as it may, there he is, this paralyzed man. He's lying at the feet of Jesus, probably somewhat on a pile of rubble, fully anticipating what he knew by faith. So Jesus looks at him and then he says to him something that was probably not expected. He said, son, be of good cheer. That is, be of good courage or be happy. He's talking down to him. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, considering the circumstances, that's kind of an interesting declaration. It is like saying, be happy, have, have courage, lying there paralyzed because your sins are forgiven. That's really what he's saying. The man came for physical healing, but instead he was told that he was absolved of his sin. Now, I don't know what his immediate thought was when Jesus said that. Maybe it was something like this. Wait, no, 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 I'm paralyzed. I'll be of good cheer when I walk again. Don't leave me laying here. Don't leave me laying here. What do you guys think about that? If you've just been injured and you can't feel your fingers, is that your sins are forgiven what you want to hear? Probably not. But the truth is, Jesus had his priorities in order. He, he knew what this man needed, and theologically, in reality, he needed what Jesus declared more than he needed 
his next breath. That's the truth. Man's physical health, though I believe it's important, is really nothing compared to our need of forgiveness for the pardon of sin. You know, it really, it would have been no real eternal benefit if Jesus healed people, but failed to affect the state of their guilt before God. You know, this is the problem that I've always had with many, um, you know, sobriety clinics, whether it be drugs or alcohol. Uh, Now, whether it be a, a weight clinic so that people can get to their target weight or a pain clinic or whatever, is that the healing of the body, the changing of someone's uh, state of sobriety, uh, it, it all means, it all comes to nothing unless that person comes to repentance and faith in Christ. See, because the truth is, uh, sober people, and you've heard me say this before, they go to hell every day and they never come back. You know, people uh, cured from cancer, they go to hell every day and they never come back. And so Jesus rightly presents the most important issue, and that's the pardon of someone's sin, okay? The pardon of someone's sin. There's nothing more urgent than forgiveness because there's nothing so dreadfully imminent as our death because we just don't know. God knows the day has been appointed, amen? And it can happen at any second. One of the things that has uh, has been sadly, I don't want to use the word fascinating, but have you guys noticed all of the extremely young athletes of late that have just been dying? I know there's conspiracy theories about vaccines and the rest. Maybe so. Maybe the vaccine is going to kill us all. Praise God, to die is gain. Okay? <laughs> and uh, we get to Jesus first. I don't care about that stuff. It's just so amazing that you know, young athletes are invincible. They're in the prime of their youth. They're, they're so healthy. Their bodies are chiseled. They have, you know, they're the diet, everything's going on. They have all of their future ahead of them, and then they're gone. Their heart just stops. They've expired. It's appointed a man once to die, and then the judgment. Okay? And I think that is imminent and unknowable. And so at any second, any of us could stand before the throne of God and give an account for all of our transgressions. And those who are outside of the grace of God will perish forever. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. If this paralytic was aware of his eternal plight apart from Christ, nothing would have been sweeter than the things that he just said. He would have been of good cheer in spite of his condition, like Joni Erickson Tata. All the young people were like, who? Yeah, 1967, she dove into shallow water and broke her neck. She's been a paralytic ever since. But also because she knows the value of forgiveness, she initially went through depression, but in Christ, She found joy in living because she has forgiveness. She has redemption. And she also has the hope of the resurrection when she will walk again. So she has forgiveness and she has hope. She's a woman that has placed her life in God's hand. I was shocked one time. I was reading the the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. If you've read our Statement of Faith, we actually have a link to that. It's the best write-up on the inerrancy of the Bible. She was one of the signers of it. I think it's great. You have R.C. Sproul, Norman Geisler. You have all of these, uh, you know, like legendary theologians, most of which are now dead. And then Joni. Johnny, sorry. I'm one of the younger people. I don't... So you can, you can watch a movie about her, read her books. Good stuff. Good stuff. Apart from Christ, there's no forgiveness. There's no hope. There would just be paralysis and then loss. So 
Jesus initially does for this man what is most essential. It's interesting as the great physician, his initial assessment put forgiveness at the top. That's the initial assessment. You guys, when we minister to people, especially to the lost, we have to keep this at the forefront of our mind. We can do all kinds of things for them regarding their, you know, their financial status, their mental and emotional health, their sobriety, even their safety, their marriage relationships. But until they believe on Christ for forgiveness, we have ultimately done nothing for them. In fact, theologically, we have things really backwards, as we'll get into later in the, uh, the chapter, is we like to help people get to a certain place before they come to Christ. Now, that's really, that's, it's sectarian. It's, it's not sectarian, but it's secular. That's their thinking. But that's not Christianity. That's not biblical thinking. We know that there's no end to their depravity. We know that there's no end to the brokenness of this world. Someone must first come to Christ, and then he begins to transform and do a work that we can never do for them. Amen? It was the top priority for Jesus. In fact, it's the very reason that Jesus came. He came to die for sins so that he could forgive humanity. We must keep that in mind. But the very second, following Jesus' declaration, a conflict began. And quite honestly, this is the conflict that I enjoy so much in the Gospels. It's Jesus and the Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees. So let's look at it. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. So without saying a word, these, these Bible scholars accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And what is implied by their accusation is actually stated clearly in Mark and Luke, who record them saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? I could not agree more, okay? It's true, if Jesus is not God, while taking upon himself the authority and prerogative to forgive sins, he is blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Of course, they do not believe that this homeless carpenter from Nazareth is God in the flesh, but looks can be deceiving, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? Now, I think this is quite funny. You see, by knowing their unspoken thoughts and by accusing them of evil, for accusing him of blasphemy is both revelation and a declaration of his own deity. How so? Well, by knowing their thoughts... He does what only God can do, right? I mean, what am I thinking right now? I'm thinking you don't know what I'm thinking, okay? He does what only God can do. He's revealing something about his deity, and then by condemning their thoughts about him, he's defending his right of taking upon himself the prerogative of God to forgive sins, which only God can do. That's an indirect declaration of his deity. They probably did not catch on. It's another way of saying if... I wasn't God, you would be right. It would be blasphemy. But because of who I am, your accusation is evil. They just accused God of blasphemy. Sounds foolish and frightening. So he's getting off on the right foot with these guys. Then he says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Well, of course, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, Because that's not anything anyone can see with their eyes. No one can disprove that the man's sins were forgiven. But if you say, arise and walk, 
It only takes a second, right? It only takes a second. Yeah. The so-called healer would be proven a fraud almost immediately. But Jesus isn't all talk, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. This is sweet. He says, but that you may know. So Jesus used this whole thing as a teaching opportunity to provide greater revelation about himself. Not Here, not so much just to the people, but to the actual leadership of Israel. These are the Bible scholars, the scribes. Okay? So what Jesus is about to do for this paralytic, he says, will demonstrate to these scribes that he indeed has the authority, the right, to forgive sins. And if he has the authority to forgive sins, he's not a blasphemer, he's the Lord. He's the only one that can ultimately pardon a sinner. You know, this is interesting because the prophets of the Old Testament, we know that they performed a number of miracles, of course, as the instruments of God, but none of them were so presumptuous as to take upon themselves the prerogative to forgive sins. None of them were so presumptuous. None of them dared do such a thing. It just exceeded their pay grade. We see that they could rebuke Israel. They could call for their repentance. They could demand their faithfulness. They could even call judgment down from heaven. But the one thing they could not do is pardon a sinner. That's crazy. Only one has that authority, and he sits on heaven's throne. From whence Christ came, and later he will go, and guess what? He will come again. Yeah. And that's the beauty of some of this reference to the Son of Man. These scribes, the onlookers, they needed to know that the Son of Man indeed had authority to do this on earth. Now, the first time that you know, Jesus took that title upon himself was in Matthew 8, verse 20. It's, he said, you know, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's talking about his, his homelessness. You want to come follow me? I just want you to understand something. We sleep under the stars. We don't have homes. And then it was at that time that we explored really the significance of that title and exactly what Jesus meant by it. And I said that as we go through Matthew's gospel, we'll, we'll look at that more closely. We'll keep track of Jesus' use of it and the, the relationships and things that he ties to it. So quickly, as a refresher, uh, this title refers to three individuals in the Old Testament. Three. So let me just review that with you real quick. God referred to Ezekiel this way some 93 times. An angel referred to Daniel that way one time. Okay, so the prophets were referred to in this way, but the title was used of one other person who's actually seen in a vision, a vision of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 3. Let me read that to you again, because we, you know, we want to have the gravity of all this fall upon us now. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold... One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Now, the way that we know that this is a reference to Jesus is that when Jesus stood before the high priest at his trial, Matthew 26, 64, he basically told the high priest that I'm the guy 
in Daniel 7 that, that he saw in his vision. And the high priest tore his clothes, accused Jesus of blasphemy, and said, what other evidence do we need to execute him? He knew what was up, didn't he? Yeah. Now, to the Son of Man, from Daniel 7, was given everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom that would never, ever be destroyed. And Jesus is saying that with all of that authority is the authority on earth to forgive sins. All that authority. Apparently, it takes a lot of authority to pardon a sinner. A lot of authority. Now, we can forgive one another, and, and what we mean by that is we'll no longer be offended or hold that against you. But as David said, I have sinned against you and you alone. All sin ultimately will be accounted for at the throne of God. And it takes all authority to pardon sin. Now, the scribes may not have fully understood what Jesus meant by taking that title to himself, but over the course of his ministry, they begin to catch on, at least what he means. It doesn't mean that they believe it. The high priest certainly did not. Otherwise, he would not have condemned Jesus to death. What they did understand at this point was that Jesus was, if they weren't too dim, they would at least understand that he was hinting to his deity. But he wasn't hinting. He was declaring his own majesty. That's what he's doing. There's no other way to take his words. So the conflict between Jesus and the scribes, it begins here in Matthew's gospel. And it's just going to escalate until we find him at Calvary. More of that later. So Jesus then turns his attention back to the paralytic and says, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And now the scribes know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The question is, what will they do with that information? Like anybody else, they can either humble themselves and follow Jesus, or they can harden their hearts and come against him. But that is true for everyone. You know, nothing can change the reality of who Jesus is, but everyone must decide what they will do with him. Are you for him or are you against him? There's no question that you need him. You and I, we have sinned against God. We've, we've rebelled against his moral will. And without him, we stand condemned. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, John 3, but I came to save the world. He says, the world is already condemned. They've already condemned themselves through rebellion. We can either repent and trust him for forgiveness, or we can repel him through unbelief and further rebellion, but it will not change the reality of our plight. If you're outside of Christ, you, like the rest of humanity, you're on borrowed time, borrowed time. Every, you just, we're ever moving toward and forward to our expiration date, only to face God on the other side, where you will give an account for all of your sin and all of your unbelief. Now, I would spare you of that dreadful day by crying out to the one who alone has authority to pardon you. It is Christ who suffered for your sin and mine and gave his life. He was delivered over to our judgment and then to secure our pardon and present us faultless before his throne. The scriptures say, history attests that he conquered death and walked out of the tomb. He's a living, powerful, authoritative savior. Because of that, this man got up and he walked home forgiven, forgiven. So I would pray that when this service is done, that you'd get up and you'd go home forgiven. Step up and into the kingdom of God. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. Power to do what exactly? 
to heal a paralytic, to forgive sins, or a combination of the two. Now, as we go through the Gospels, it becomes clear that the majority of people viewed Jesus as another prophet, not as the Son of God. So because of that, I must say that they really missed the implications of what Jesus was saying, what he was doing. They were probably, like so many other people, they were distracted by the miracle. And so they misunderstood what Jesus was teaching. You know, Jesus did not say that he was a mere man who had the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, I'm the son of man. He took on a very peculiar title for himself from Daniel's vision, which could only speak of his divine nature, that he's the God-man. You know, only God in man has the authority to do that on earth. He's not one among many prophets. You guys remember, right? Peter, or not Peter, but Jesus came to the disciples and said, who do men say that I am? And they're like, some people think you're Jeremiah. What? Some people think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people think you're the prophet, referring to Deuteronomy 18. And he was, but they didn't understand much of that. Or they said, he's just one of the prophets. And Jesus was probably like, wow, never said any of that stuff in my teaching. But he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter has his moment, doesn't he? For about five seconds. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then five seconds later, Jesus calls him Satan. So he's up and then he's down. (laughs) Crazy stuff. You know, like so many today, people are drawn to these you know, so-called faith healers on TBN, distracted by fake miracles, except Jesus actually was healing people. People are amazed, they're mesmerized, they're even bewitched. But getting distracted with that stuff, you won't get it. You won't come to the truth of what you need to understand. Are we getting it? We have the advantage of hindsight. You know, we can see the big picture. We can take all the pieces. You know, they're trapped in the moment of that time and, and growing and progressive revelation, but we, we have it all before us now in the scriptures, and we can put it all together. So are we getting it? Have you experienced Jesus' authority to forgive your sins? Only he can do that. Let's move on to verse nine. Let's introduce Matthew. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. All right, so now we're, we've come to the calling of Matthew. He's the one that actually penned this particular book that we're reading, that we're studying. Now, who was Matthew? Matthew was a Jew, but he wasn't considered a Jew by his own people because Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, who was the great oppressor and the great pagan enemy of Israel. Now, tax collectors were notoriously wealthy, uh, not because Rome had made his occupation lucrative, but because Rome, they just didn't care how much the collectors collected as long as Rome got their cut, okay? So tax collectors, dishonestly, they set their own wages above and beyond what Rome required in order just to satisfy their own greed. And of course, the people of Israel despised these these men, for a couple of reasons. Of course, they're ripping people off through dishonest gain. And they were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. Anti-patriotism, you can get away with it here without very many repercussions. But in Israel, you're a complete outcast. 
Tax collectors were disqualified in Jewish society from being judges and even witnesses because they could not be trusted. Yeah, no jury duty for them. You're like, I want to be a tax collector. And then from the, the perspective of the rabbis, it was nearly impossible for a tax collector to repent or even be made right with God. It was next to impossible. And Matthew was among the worst kind of tax collectors. There was two different kinds in Israel. There was the one who collected taxes from the common people. And then there was the ones that collected taxes for, you know, they were those that dealt in foreign commerce for customs. It was those who sat in tax offices. That was Matthew. His tax office was near the shores of the Galilee, where the merchants traded outside of Herod's jurisdiction on the other side of the lake. And his office was located on the Upper Galilean Road, where imported and exported goods were exchanged from Damascus to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. These these tax collectors were considered the greatest oppressors. Even one of the Greek words they used to refer to them had it, it implied oppression. They were considered a criminal race of aggressively greedy tyrants. Don't you love that language? You can find it all in the Talmuds if you can have time to rummage through it all. So in other words, Matthew had a shady past and a bad reputation. He was hated and he was excluded and for good reason. But for such is the kingdom of God. I love this. The invitation is open to all who would turn to Christ and follow him. And so as Jesus passed by the tax office, he leaned in and said, follow me, follow me. And Matthew, without hesitation, but probably filled with surprise, he got up and he followed Jesus. Listen, no rabbi, no religious figure, and no one from the community had ever paid him any positive attention. Wealthy, yes, but completely lonely. People mistreated him. People talked bad about him. They would not associate with him. But Jesus walked by and called Matthew to be with him. So real quick, why did Matthew just get up and go with Jesus so suddenly? Now, he wasn't among Jesus' early disciples. But you know, Capernaum is not like a big city. He certainly knew about Jesus. He had probably witnessed Jesus performing miracles. He had no doubt heard him teach, if not days ago on the mountain from Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He may have been following Jesus somewhat from a distance from time to time, observing and listening. I mean, nothing else could explain his immediate response to Jesus' call. There's no way he would you know, stop and just drop everything, especially a lucrative living and follow a stranger, right? There's some history before this. This guy is very familiar with Jesus. And apparently he was drawn to him, felt welcomed by him, even loved by him, so much so that when Jesus said, follow me, Matthew wanted nothing more, nothing more. So Matthew stepped out of the tax office and into the kingdom of God. And he'll be recognized officially in chapter 10 as one of the 12. But this story is great for me because... I love countercultural things. And I love how Jesus, with just two words, follow me, could challenge social and religious norms. It's just because of the one he said it to. You know, if it were even possible for a tax collector to repent, there was no way that anyone would embrace him before he repented of sin. You know, he was a leper without leprosy, he was a social and spiritual 
outcast. He was unworthy of kindness. But as we've said already, that's not the nature of Christ, not his love. It's not the nature of the gospel. We need to understand that repentance from sin cannot even take place until there's repentance unto Christ. Isn't that true? Can we demand repentance of someone who is totally depraved before they're redeemed? How well did you do? Not so well. We must first come to Christ for salvation, and then Christ alone can affect our repentance from sin. Jesus doesn't say, like so many of us have said, and many in the religious community, you know, stop sinning, shape up, get it together, and then we can embrace you, then we can welcome you. That is the religious demands of the Pharisees. I know that because I've read enough of the Talmuds to know that they required repentance first, that you have to be good enough first, and then God will embrace you. Look, if that's what's required, we're done, all of us. We must be born again first. We must have repentance unto Christ first, and then he alone can begin to shape and mold and make something beautiful out of us. The Pharisaical view is not Christian. Jesus calls people to himself, and once they respond in faith, he empowers their repentance to turn away from sin. We must be empowered. He draws people to himself by which he turns them from sin. It was in Matthew's following that he was changed. If we believe that people in their own strength have the ability to repent and bring about the necessary change to be holy, we're inadvertently saying that people do not need Jesus. Do you understand that? I mean, all of historical theology says the depravity of man, that he's spiritually dead, that he does not have the ability to do CPR on himself, to breathe life into himself, and then to get him rolling. We must have the Spirit of God indwell us, invade us, and then the process of sanctification begins. But salvation through faith in Christ must come first. I also love this because if you have a shady past, do you know what Jesus would say to you? Even though many in the religious community would exclude you, he would say, follow me. Come to me. Believe on me. Trust in me, and I will make you fit for my glory. I will make you a trophy of my grace. I'll save you from the penalty of your past. I'll forgive you of every lawless deed. You guys, the word forgiveness in the Greek means to take out of the way. To take out of the way. This animosity that is between you and a holy God he removes it, and then we're reconciled to him. It's amazing. And then he will justify you from all sin. And as the scriptures say, he will put his spirit inside of us. Ezekiel prophesying about the new covenant, he says, uh, God says, I'll put my spirit inside you, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. You must have the spirit of God in order to be saved and to be transformed and pleasing in his sight. Jesus said this to all who are burdened by sin and shame. He said, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see how Jesus is the one doing everything? We just come to him, and then he does the work. You know, the world and even those in the church today would put burdens upon people with a shady past. I think it's time for the church to get her theology together. Amen? Yeah. Those expectations are completely out of people's reach. But come to Christ and follow him, and he will produce in you 
supernaturally the change that God requires. He'll wash away sin and he will lead you into righteousness. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. And we'll keep worshiping. Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you that when all is said and done in your teaching, there's no question about who you are. As Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. And Lord, we thank you that you alone have the authority to forgive sin. And in order to make that possible, you suffered the most gruesome forms of torture. And then you died in our place, and you rose as our champion. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in our midst that, like Matthew, has a past that is shameful, I pray, Lord, that they would heed your word, they would come to you, they would follow you, they would trust you, Lord, and that you would save them, and Lord, that by your gracious hand, you would begin to change them and make them, as Paul says, a vessel of honor. Lord, do for them what they cannot do for themselves, what we as a church cannot do for them, but only what you can do. Wash them, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.